told Josh this morning that uh, when you look at Lazarus in this passage in chapter 11 of John, there are about six sermons in there. I'm not going to play Josh Green with you tonight. I'm not going to say, here are my three points. I'm going to share what God's put in my heart, and you find your three points in there. The Holy Spirit will help you. For those of you that are really logical like Josh Womble and my wife, I am not a linear, straight-line thinker. I'm an oblique thinker, so I'm all over the map to get to the end process. So uh, you'll appreciate Josh again on Sunday morning (laughs) or the next time Josh Womble shares with you. I want to start by telling you about a trip Erlene and I made a few years ago. We went out west to see my brother before he died and hopefully lead him to the Lord, but we went by the Hoover Dam. The Hoover Dam is such a massive, it's one of the seven wonders of the new world. And I want to equate that to Jesus' statement that I am the resurrection. So many of these other things are little chicken nugget bites along the way Now, unless you were preaching a particular one of those topics, but the I am the resurrection statement is a great theological milestone and marker. The Hoover Dam, when Erlene and I were standing on the dam looking across Lake Mead, and it's a wonderful emerald green color. Some of you have seen some photos and where the water level for drought on the west coast has been down for several decades now. There's a bathtub ring of white stained rock around it. But when you're standing on this structure, 726 feet above the Colorado River. For six decades, it was the tallest dam in the world. It's not now. But all the water this holds back, all the concrete, 4.5 million cubic yards of concrete went into this. It's more concrete than went into any civil project, all the civil projects in the government combined for 27 years before it was built. So just as this is the building block up to Jesus saying, I am the resurrection, this Hoover Dam, looking 726 feet down, trucks look like little, little pin dots 726 feet down. When you're standing there, even though it is producing enough electricity for three states, Nevada, New Mexico, and California, just massive amount of, but there's no hum, there's no vibration, it's just smooth production of electricity and water falling 700 feet and hitting a turbine and turning it. If we were to take the concrete that's in the Hoover Dam, we could build a road 16 feet wide, 8 inches thick, from San Francisco to New York. There are several things that happened in the process of them building. They had to build a big ice plant. They were going to produce 1,000 tons of ice a day to speed up the curing of the concrete so they could stack the next set of concrete on top of it. 1,000 tons of ice a day. And all of this is my oblique thinking to get at how amazing this statement is. Most of you know the story of Lazarus, and so I want to focus on only three verses from John chapter 11, 25, 26, and 27. 
when Jesus comes after Lazarus has died and he's facing Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, after asking the question of Martha, she really does not answer it. it sounds like kids, doesn't it? You ask them, what happened to that broken lamp? They'll talk about all kinds of things, but they won't get directly to what's right in front of them and how the lamp got broken. But she does say, you are the Christ. And she's straight to the personal affirmation of her trust. Do we really trust that Jesus is going to take care of all the other part of life that we can't see, haven't seen, have no experience with? None of you have been resurrected from the dead and can tell any of us what it's like on the other side. Jesus is the only authority we have on that subject and what he's going to do for us at the point of our death. We know from Thessalonians and other places to be absent from the body as a Christian means to be present with the Lord. I don't know what you're going to do when you see Jesus. I think about later in this particular passage, after Jesus finishes with Martha, he goes to Mary, and Mary just falls at his feet and wraps her arms around his legs. Josh, what would you do if at the invitation next Sunday morning, someone came up, fell flat on the floor before you, and wrapped their arms around your feet? What an affirmation. There is supposed to be a response to Jesus' words. Joshua was extra kind about just going to church and leaving. You, you know what us old folks used to say? She's just a pew warmer. She comes and warms a pew and goes home. That's it. That's all we get out of her. That's all we get out of him. Martha and Mary were engaged, involved, and responsive when Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I want to look at verse 27 first. I know that's the last of the three verses. But Martha says, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. This is the fifth affirmation in the book of John of who Jesus is. You go back to the very beginning of John and Nathaniel in chapter 1. It says, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And then we have the Samaritan. And it says in chapter 4, it says to Jesus, you are the Savior of the world. And Peter, in that great confrontation, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Holy One of God. And then the blind man in chapter 9 says, surely you are the Son of Man, not just another human being, the Son of Man. So Mary and Martha see Jesus and His words through different light, and each one of us ought to see it from a different perspective too. It's a matter of where the Holy Spirit is convicting you. When they ask about what I want to use for verse for call to worship tonight, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. All of us are heavy laden in different ways. There's some of you that have your acts together at managing your finances. It's an absolute beautiful thing. 
Some of you, when it comes to eating right and taking care of your health, wow, you're champions. You're a Babe Ruth when it comes to that. But all of us also have some issue where I really don't have it figured out. I really can't get a handle on it, and I am laboring. I am struggling with this aspect. Many times we refer to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the four Gospels. Several of the commentators label John as the fourth evangelist. All of this is written that we might believe, know, and understand and have it be medicine to our soul until we cross over and get this glorious new body. I'm excited about that day. We're praying for Brother uh, Bob Samuels. And I've had the experience before of going to the nursing home and praying with somebody. And they said, I'm sure sorry that me and you are crossways, preacher. I said, what do you mean? I didn't know you and I had any conflicts or issues. They're saying, you're praying for me to be healed and safe and, and live on. And they said, I'm praying for me to die. I've got more waiting for me on the other side. This particular lady said, I buried three husbands. I buried all my children. And my ministry right now is to my great-grandchildren. But for us to get life in perspective, we're here for just a little bit. Throughout the scripture, it's using the term of, of we're, we're a pilgrim. We're, we're just on a beginning part here. And the greater part of life is on the other side. I'm reminded of a song several years ago I sung in a choir about the first million years. Larry, what are you going to do the first million years you're in heaven? The first million. Not the second million or the third or the fourth. Miss Alma, what are you going to do the first million years in this resurrected body? You're going to dance on the streets of gold? You're going to sing? You're going to shout? You're going to fish in the uh, crystal sea? <laughs> There's so much to think of that's glorious and grand on the other side, just as this Hoover Dam is this massive architectural engineering colossal feat Jesus being the predecessor, the leader, the initiator, the power beyond this life to step through the curtain on the other side. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. So John the Evangelist, up until this point, has written of multiple affirmations of who Jesus is. He explores all of the spiritual aspects to Jesus' miracles. And he's particularly interested in the uniqueness of each one. Shortly after Erlene and I were married and she came to faith and I was renewed in pushing myself to understand the Bible more, I was going to document and research all the miracles Jesus did and I was going to figure out the pattern. Well... <laughs> It's worthless. <laughs> a worthless endeavor other than just reading the scripture a lot. Jesus heals one because of his faith. Another one is healed because of somebody else's faith. They didn't, the person that got healed didn't demonstrate any faith. And the uniqueness of Jesus. So John has explored all those until we come up to chapter 11. And chapter 11 is the hinge point. Up until now, we've looked at Jesus with the disciples healings and miraculous things and after chapter 11 the end of chapter 11 is the Pharisees begin to plot his murder 
because of his claim that I am the resurrection. Other than that, he's just a nut from Nazareth. He's a nobody. But chapter 11 is the hinge, and from chapter 11 forward, we see Jesus heading to the cross and to his physical resurrection. They hated what he claimed when he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. It's not in following the Jewish rules. It's not in the priest's custom. It's not in the Levites and the priest's affirmations. Jesus says it is in me. Focused, funneled, raw power right there. That believing in the resurrection and believing in Jesus, living in Jesus... We have trouble defining the word belief. What's it really believe? If we were doing the CNN interview with Satan, Satan, do you believe in God? Well, everybody knows he's real, yeah. So what is it about belief? And Jesus says, it's I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? At the point of our salvation, when our belief goes beyond an intellectual, philosophic thing, is the Bible great stuff? I had a brother for 20 years that said the Bible is one of the greatest books ever written. I wish wish people would live by it. He says, I can't quite get through the miracles and the parts to step outside of science. My brother believed the Bible was a great book but he did not personally incorporate the life of Christ internally. John is documenting here that at the point of our salvation is when we really come alive. There are new sensitivities in you at the point of your salvation you did not have before. I had three sisters that I was in constant conflict, fought with them all the time. And after my salvation, I began to care a little for the first time. There's sensitivities that come alive in you. You begin to be more active, more purposeful, more engaged. There's an aspect of life that begins to come about because you're endowed with new powers. And that's a whole other message. I told Josh, I believe this chapter 11 could be six messages by itself. There's that much meaty, deep stuff in here that's taking place. From Ephesians, Paul writes, The indescribable power and sufficiency of Christ is proved in the resurrection. Paul spent time with Jesus alone in the desert. When Jesus says, Whoever lives and believes in me will never die, Jesus is describing our life is like a fog. When there's a really heavy fog and you're trying to drive and you can only see six feet in front of the car, that's what life is like without Jesus. You're in a drug stupor, you're in a fog, you can see not any distance out in front of you. You can't see to make wise decisions for your kids, your communications, your relationships, all your decisions, because you're not really alive until you have Christ in you. One of the interesting applications of this particular passage has to do with Christ speaking to us in our most 
agonizing moments. And I'm talking about agonizing positive and agonizing negative. At the birth of my son, when I walked into the nursery and they said, would you like to see your son? And I'm expecting to look through this glass window and see this little scrunched up thing. But I walked around a corner and the nurse handed me my son and just put him in my arms. I just started crying. I don't care what I learned in biology class about the birds and bees, but this had nothing to do with sex. I just, just totally overwhelmed. Newness of life. Value of life. All of a sudden, my life had completely different significance, and Christ was with me to say, this is a big deal. Sensitivities and awareness having Christ in you that you don't have without Christ. There was a time I was fired on a job and I thought I was the best employee the company had. Didn't see it coming. They considered me worthless. And in that season of unemployment, some of you know the energy levels that I have. Uh, when my son and his wife got married in South Africa and we told our friends we were going to take a sabbatical from the church and be in South Africa for a month, they thought they would bring me back in a straight jacket in the cargo hold. There's no way I could go 30 days without purpose and meaning and doing something with my hands and being involved and engaged. I did survive that. My relatives survived that. Jesus is telling us what you have received so far in all of his teachings for the disciples is just a preface. You know what the preface to a book is? They give you just a few details before they bring on the main course, the main plot, the main characters. It's a foretaste of what is to come. Jesus, up until this point, has been teaching the disciples about the character of God, what authentic followers and respecters of the Father and the Scripture and the prophets that came before. He's been teaching them the lighter subjects. And here is the dividing point. You go from milk to meat and potatoes right here. I am the resurrection. When we went to South Africa, we got to be hosted by our new in-laws. One of those family members owned an inn outside the Kruger National Park where you're seeing all the KET specials and all the things there of wildlife in Africa. Well, there we were at this inn, and we sat down to this dinner. There's a row of silverware to my right one to my left, and the top of my plate up towards the center of the table. I nudged Arlene and said, we're in trouble. <laughs> and then it got worse. All I had to do was watch what the other people did. Where, which piece of silverware did they pick up? But they bring out, and in a fancy meal, it alternates. There is sweet, there's sour, there's citric, there's meat, there's hot, there's cold, there's soup, there's crisp, there's soft. Well, they bring out the first couple of courses, and when I get this piece of fish that's about the size of a chicken nugget, I'm elbowing my wife again, and I say, I'm going to starve. <laughs> uh, 
I've been accused of having a tapeworm. I don't know what's wrong with me. But come unto me, all ye labor and are heavy laden. That's me. But then, as the meal progressed through course 3, 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, 10, I eventually began to get my appetite quenched. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection, I'm going to give you all a new, deep, theological word. This is the biggie. <laughs> this is the biggie. When Martha is confronted with Jesus saying, I am the resurrection, her response is quiet, restrained. She thinks her hope is lost because Jesus was not in time. Jesus is always on time. Never late, never early. In our crises, when he says, I am, it's I am everything you need. Sometimes you need shepherding. Sometimes you need nourishment. I need bread. The raising of Lazarus kicked in all of Jesus' foes, and the plot began to kill him. So much of the time, we don't know what to ask God for. Have you thought that sometimes on our prayer list? What do we really pray? Uh, it's been sweet to be part of church family as we've prayed through the McBrooms over, over Damien and they would, their genuine desire, they're more decent individuals than I am. Some of you say amen to that, that's all right. But for them to go back and be praying, we'd like to see God unite the family, heal the family, strengthen the family, and the mother to be able to take care of Damien. He's a sweetie. I enjoy taking care of him in the nursery. He plays nice. <laughs> Some of the rest of y'all's children and grandchildren don't always play nice. Somebody said this morning, it was Larry. Larry said, the nursery was rough. <laughs> we don't know what to ask for, but God says to us, all of your future, when you are trusting in me, I am all of life beyond what you know it to be. And it's better than what you know now. Some of you have had some really peaceful, gentle, blessed lives, and some of you have had a lot of trauma. But what lies on the other side is better. Norman Vincent Peale shared the illustration years ago that said, if you could interview a baby in the mother's womb, and you asked the child, and the child could communicate, how do you like it in here? Oh, it's warm, comfy, never hungry, well-fed, satisfied, content. Every time mom goes for a walk, it's like being in a rocket chair. The child would be content, but the child doesn't know what is waiting for them out of the womb. The same is true for us. What lies for us on the other side of our new resurrection and seeing the fullness, the power, and the majesty what will it be like to sing with a choir of 10,000 angels and you'll be in perfect tune, perfect harmony, and you're going to raise the roof of heaven? What lies on the other side in Christ 
in the resurrection is stupendous beyond our grandest imagination. I hope some of you have seen the movie, a little gory, older movie. The title is Maximus. It's about a Roman gladiator. He actually was commander of the Roman armies, the general. And in the movie, the emperor was Marcus Aurelius. He is going to name Maximus the new emperor. Well, the son gets word of this. He goes and kills dad. He assigns Maximus to be arrested and set up for execution. And the execution of his wife and his son are put into play immediately. The wife and son are hung on a cross and their bodies are burned. Maximus escapes only to be captured by slave traders. They see this muscle giant of a man and they sell him as a gladiator. He fights his way through all of the preliminaries and eventually ends up in the Colosseum in Rome. The climactic moment in the movie is when, against all odds, Maximus beats everybody, shows this stupendous courage, outrageous physical triumphant win. The false emperor comes down into the arena and says, tell us who you are. And he walks away from him. He says, I'm talking to you. Don't turn your back on me. Who are you? He says, just call me gladiator. He says, come back here. I have the authority of the entire Roman Empire at my disposal. Who are you? Take off your helmet. He takes off his helmet. He says, My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north and the general of Felix's legions, the loyal servant of the true emperor. I'm the father of a murdered son and the husband to a murdered wife. His sword is at his side. The challenge for us on this side of our resurrection is who are you? Because of what the scripture says, do you say, I'm an adopted son of the living Christ, I'm a forgiven saint. I'm a triumphant warrior of the victorious God. I am eternal. I will live forever, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Is that your explanation of who you are? Because you are saved, and you are in Christ, and you have 10,000 promises on the other side waiting for you. Who are you? Josh alluded this morning to who some of us are. Sometimes we come to church and we wear our church mask. 
How many times in this building is it said when we're shaking hands, how are you, how are you, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, and you had a fight on the way into church? You laid awake half the night because you know what the amount of money that's in your checking account. You know the bills that are coming. I'm fine. I'm fine. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. When he can put down the stake and say, this is it. Satan, now it's time. Me and you, toe to toe, and you're going down. You are going down. All the religious leaders begin to stack up against Jesus from this point on. All of the civil authorities begin to stack up against Jesus. The crowds begin to come against Jesus. And he's headed to the demonstration of what resurrection looks like. When he meets Thomas in the upper room and he's walked through the walls and the chained doors and locked compartments. He says, here it is, Thomas touch him. Here it is, Thomas. What we say in our self-talk, I don't know how many times people have asked Earlene privately, when Gordon's doing construction and he drills a hole in his finger or hits his hammer with the thumb, what's he say? What do you say about yourself when the pressure's on? The car wreck, the medical report, the bank account, the rejection, the fiery hate from the neighbor, the jealousy from somebody, do you say, I'm forgiven and I've got a resurrected body waiting for me right around the bend? What do you say? How do you perceive yourself? I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. Past, present, in future, there's no sin I can commit against my wife, my kids, my church, the community that I'm not already forgiven. Forgiven. Let's pray together. Father, your word pierces our heart. It cuts through muscle, skin, to the marrow of the bone. Help us see ourselves clearly in the light of your victory. We're not just basking in your shadow. We're walking hand in hand with you. You include us completely in what lies ahead. You sit beside the Father in his throne in heaven. You watch all that we do and Luke 12, 8 says the angels applaud when they see us lift up the name of Jesus. If I be lifted up, all men will be drawn unto me. Because of the resurrection of Christ, because of our resurrection being imminent, it's a guaranteed thing. We thank you right now for the confidence this gives us in living life and not letting Satan take a single victory telling us a lie about who we are or are not because we know who we are in Christ. Let us stay dedicated to the Word, to serving you until our last breath and affirm with every word
you are my Christ, my Savior, my Redeemer, and I want to follow in your footsteps into eternity. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.